Uh, I am, my voice is uh, extra sexy this morning. Um, <clears throat> so give me a second. I'm a little hoarse, so it's gonna take me a second to find my level. Uh, part of the problem, what's going on here is my day job is I work as a school teacher uh, with children, or as I like to call them, little vectors of disease. And um, earlier in the week, I teach fifth grade, but I ran into, there was a kindergartner who was lost um, um, with around a bunch of eighth graders, you know, like, so like this big. And so I did the right thing. I, I took her hand and like helped her find her teacher, but I didn't follow appropriate procedure, which is after that you're supposed to dip your hand in carbolic acid. Uh, so <laughs> hence uh, what we have today. But I think, okay, so once I get going, like, so I think I'm at a good level and Paul will just crank the volume insanely high if it doesn't work. Uh, so with that, beloved, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 22. Uh, Pro it'll be Proverbs 22. That is on page, I wrote it down, page 544 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, and as uh, Chad always says, if you want a free Bible, be, you're welcome to take one of those. So we're on page 544 in the Pew Bibles, but it's also Proverbs 22, verses 10 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Let us pray. Our Lord, we ask now that by your grace and by the wisdom of your spirit, you would speak to us your word that we might become wise like you. Amen. I was recent, I recently heard from a church that was um, listening to some of my sermons that uh, the comment from one of the elders was, you talk a lot about Presbyterianism, uh, which is true, uh, but like they're really pushing the Presbyterianism. So I feel like I should start off this morning by complaining about Presbyterians. Uh, as I have lived in conservative Presbyterian circles for the last several decades, one of the most annoying things about these people is that there are four names for the congregations, generally. Uh, there's a place name, like you can use a place name, so like North Cincinnati Community Church, although of course it really should be North of Cincinnati Community Church, but I, they don't take my suggestions. Uh, so you have the place name, or you can be Trinity, Grace or Providence, like it's those, it's those, and even though that annoys me, and I'm always complaining, like well, we should have, we should have more. There, there are more things in the Bible, right? There's a lot more words in the Bible that we could use for place names. When I go to church that doesn't 
have one of those names, like I get a little nervous. And so when my family moved here and we found Living Hope Church, we came to visit and like, well, they, they seem nice, but they've got to be liberals uh, <laughs> with, a name, with a name like that. Um, the jury's still out. Uh, the, <laughs> but I think the, 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 the ones that use the name Providence, uh, actually, I have a beef with most of those congregations. <laughs> Because I think, I think, I get the sense, not from all of them, but many of them when I visit, that what they really mean is predestination. And we want to be a predestination Presbyterian church because they're Calvinists and that's the only thing that matters about being a Calvinist, which of course is profoundly not true uh, and would irritate John Calvin to, to, to no end. Um, even heretics back in Calvin's day were predestinarians. Uh, the, 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 it's the, 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 the predestination simply means that God has planned everything that's going to occur. Now that's true, right? That's true, that's a biblical doctrine, but it doesn't even show up in our catechism. What, what we do have, what we do have is what we heard earlier today is question 11 is about God's providence. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. And that's what you need to think about when you hear the word providence. Not something that God is in charge of everything. That is, while entirely true, is not, honestly, is not particularly interesting or even edifying, I would go so far as to argue. It is rather the fact that God's plans, what he works out in the lives of each individual is holy, wise, and powerful. I want to hit that word wise because that, of course, is our sermon title this morning as we've been talking about uh, using, using uh, question four of the catechism, what is God? And the answer, of course, which you have all memorized, is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we're dealing this morning with the attribute of God's wisdom. I could also say God is wisdom, but with God is wise, because that echoes what is in uh, question 11 about God's providence. If we want to understand God's providence, I'm sorry, understand God's wisdom, we come at it, I think, most profitably from the angle of his providence. That God has planned for the creation, his plan for the world, that which is best, that which is wise and holy and good, that's what we need to understand. Uh, if, if we look merely at the fact that God is in charge of everything, that he's planned all things, we can miss his character. We can miss the nature of the being who has done these things and who has planned these things. And that's what we need to emphasize in that's what I plan to emphasize in this morning's sermon, and that's what we need to see in our text. Proverbs is the preeminent book of wisdom. It's a place in the Bible that everybody knows to go to for godly wisdom. But what our text is about this morning is not so much human wisdom, but about God's wisdom, where we see how God is at work to preserve the social order that may not sound very interesting, that may not that sound a little dull, but it actually is a profound truth that we need to understand and that every, every generation has needed to understand as we consider the world in which we live. Because in this world, 
You, as a believer, you as a Christian, are called to pursue both God's grace and the social order. So what we'll see is that the Lord preserves society even when society seems disordered. The Lord preserves society. As we look at our first several verses, we'll see that the Lord preserves society, and he begins, our text begins with a command. There are two moods to the Proverbs. One is the imperative, do this. The other is the indicative, this is how it is. Uh, Verse 10 is an imperative. It tells you to do something. Uh, It tells you to drive out a scoffer because it is your calling as a believer to restore and to maintain social order. To restore and to maintain social order. The problem with the scoffer is the scoffer drives, I'm sorry, the scoffers cause discord. They cause disharmony. They cause trouble in the community. The scoffer is somebody who has something negative to say about everything and everybody and who poses as being wise, sees things the way they really are, but is constantly criticizing everything around him. Now, there is a difference between the scoffer and the social critic because there is a lot wrong with society. There are a number of things that are broken and that need to be fixed. And there's nothing wrong with pointing that out, but it's the motive for pointing that out. Uh, And so if the motive is to say, we've got a problem, how can we fix it? Well, that's good, right? It's the first step is identifying the problem. And one one of the errors we so often fall into in our cultures, whether that's a subculture of a particular congregation or broader culture, of of a government or a nation is to think that just because somebody is saying there's a problem that 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 needs to be the, 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 the pointing out of a problem rather needs to be squelched it needs to be stopped that's the first step to fixing anything Right? It's because it's, anybody who has owned a house has had the same experience that I've had is that you know you know that you should really fix the faucet when it begins dripping but if you ignore it it will certainly fix itself, right? If you just wait long enough, the thing is going to fix itself because that's how entropy works. Uh, that's inevitably, things repair themselves. And so that's the instinct that we also have as a society is to say like, oh yeah, no, 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 no. It's, it's, let's just pretend there isn't a problem and it will just go away, it will fix itself. And no, there, there's a, so there's a role, there's an important role for somebody to say like, we got a problem, let's try to fix it. We need to listen to those people. The person we ought not listen to is the scoffer because a scoffer poses as somebody who is wise, sees what's wrong in society, points it out, but doesn't have anything to fix, doesn't have any fixes to offer rather than trying to do that, is simply showing what's wrong and in fact is using that ability to see what's wrong to tear down people who are around him, to say, everybody else is foolish, but I'm wise because I can see through everything. Listen to me, I'm clever. Look at me, I'm clever. And this is, and it's, honestly, I'm just going to have to get into politics because it's impossible to talk about the Proverbs without pointing to politics. And the great thing here is that if I don't name any names, anything I say, you will think I'm talking about the other team. So the problem, this is a problem though in the political order, isn't it? And the way that we run our, our, our politics is that too often the people we elect are the scoffers, the people who point out what's wrong, but they don't have any solution. 
They have no solutions. They just want to get elected to office and say, everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. Look at me. Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. Look at me. Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. Look at me. I'm on TV. Everything's wrong. But don't try to fix anything and, in fact, ruin things down the road. And that's on the macro scale, but on the micro scale. It's who are you going to listen to then? Who are your friends going to be? Who are your advisors going to be? And so that's why you need to drive out the scoffer. Because where the scoffer comes, then there is quarreling and abuse. There is argument. There is discord. There is disharmony. People turn against one another because all they see is that which is wrong, that which is negative. The critic says, here's the problem. Here are the strengths. How do we build the strengths to fix the problems? The scoffer just says problems. Everything is problems. And let's attack, 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 and destroy, destroy, destroy. So drive out the scoffer. Don't listen to the scoffer. Ignore the scoffer. And our text says quarreling and abuse will cease. And on instead, build social harmony. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Who loves purity of heart. Who is pure of heart? The person who is pure of heart is the one who is Christ-centered. Because a person who is Christ-centered knows that he's a sinner. And it is very hard to mock everyone around you and to tear down everyone around you and to point out what is wrong with everyone around you when you are aware that you yourself are a sinner. And that is why your speech can be gracious, full of grace, Because it is a speech which says, those are words that say that knowing that I'm a sinner, I have to live by God's grace to me in Jesus Christ. They are a speech that seeks to point to Christ rather than to oneself. Not how I am wise, but how Christ my Savior is wise. One who looks to help and to provide for others. Who is constantly coming back to the work of Christ, which is his hope. Because if Christ is your hope, If it is Christ who not only saved you from your sins, but Christ who is your hope for the life to come, knowing that your reward in the world to come is through Jesus Christ and his completed work, not through how well you do things or how well you do in this life or how much you are admired by the people around you, then you don't have to get people to look at you. You don't have to get people to admire you or to praise you or to think that you are awesome and great. You don't need any of that. Instead, you can help. You can provide. You can do what is necessary for those who are around you. You can help build rather than tear down. It is such people that the king or anyone in authority should want as a friend. Uh, Sometimes our kings are foolish. The people who are in authority are foolish. And you can tell the quality of a ruler by the quality of his advisors. Uh, But if the king is wise, he will know what he is missing. The person in authority is wise, will want a grace-filled person around him to build up the society. So consider how your actions affect not only yourself, but also the society around you for good or for ill. The Lord preserves society. So restore and maintain social order but know that it is the Lord who preserves social order. The Lord preserves social order. Verse 12, The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. In Proverbs, knowledge is a 
related word to wisdom. We often separate that in our daily in our daily lives. We think about knowledge as knowing stuff, and wisdom is how to do stuff or how to be wise, like how to how to work in the world. And sometimes, but but in but in Proverbs, it doesn't work that way because the truth is, if you are going to be effective, which is what a wise person is, you do have to know stuff. Uh, there is no virtue in ignorance. There's no shame in ignorance. There's no shame for not knowing stuff. Uh, but by all means, you should learn stuff. If you don't learn stuff, you can't be wise because you don't know how to do anything. And so the Lord, when we hear that the Lord keeps watch, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, he guards and preserves the wise. He guards and preserves the wise and uses the wise people to bless, to bless and to help society. And at the same time, he limits, controls, and even overturns the damage which is caused by the traitor. When we hear the word traitor, I think, as we hear it in verse 12, he overthrows the words of the traitor. We might often think of, think of that in patriotic or nationalistic senses. Who is a traitor? A traitor is somebody who betrays his country, like Benedict Arnold, uh, who you know, for all that I've read up on American history, I know almost nothing about Benedict Arnold except that he's bad, right? And that's, like, literally, he's bad. Like, I've read about George Washington, Benedict Arnold, something to do with the Revolutionary War, and was a traitor. I'm done. I don't need to know anything else. So that's what we think about the traitor. But, but it's actually, it's actually in, in Scripture here, the traitor, we need to think about the person on an individual level. Not so much Benedict Arnold, but as Judas, the person who betrays a tight-knit community, who turns on a friend. And that's where we see the Lord often will protect the wise, protect society by overturning those words. And we see it, of course, most vividly in the example of Judas, where Judas gave himself over to the evil one, but his betrayal of our Lord was used by God for the salvation of many that the Lord will keep the traitor from doing the damage that he intends. And so here, as a Christian, then, as we look at this, even though uh, verse 12 is in the indicative, it's describing the way it is, we always want to draw the imperative out of it. You can't read a proverb without drawing a command out of it. If you read a proverb without getting a command, you're reading the proverb wrong. Uh, verse 12, then, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the word of the traitor, tells you how you ought to live and ought to understand your way in the world around you. And you ought to understand that as you seek to be the pure of heart, one who loves the Lord, one who speaks the Lord's grace, who speaks of Christ and speaks of Christ-like things, then the Lord will providentially work through you in his wisdom, God will work through you to help others around you, to help the society around you. The Lord preserves society, so be thankful. Be thankful that the Lord does preserve the social order. The Lord preserves society even when society seems disordered. Even when society seems disordered. And the remainder of our text, verses 13 through 16, describe a disordered society, a society which lacks order, even seems to be in chaos. And we so frequently, people so frequently feel that our society is in chaos, that things are collapsing around us. Uh, even here in America, we have on the news, we've got 
New, uh, from every corner of the world, there's news of war and invasion and death. But so many of us feel like the place where we live, our own town, is disordered and falling apart and chaotic. Verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. This is the sluggard, which is one of my favorite words in Proverbs, because uh, it's so vivid, the sluggard. Um, it's not a slug. But a sluggard is a person. Slug is this. It's like creepy. Um, and a sluggard is a lazy person. The lazy person makes all sorts of excuses that are ridiculous to not work. And so here we see the sluggard staying at home. I don't want to go out. There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets, which was as ridiculous uh, at the time of Solomon as it is in our day today. There are stray cats, uh, but they are not likely to kill you. Um, I don't like being around them either, but they're not going to kill you as you go out to work. And this is the problem of laziness. There's always excuses. And, 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 it, and what I think of here, like what's the modern analogy for this? Uh, and I think about, well, sometimes lazy people have jobs. And this is one of the things that drives me crazy about the world in which we live. And, and it's like going to the store, going to a grocery store. You've had this experience or something very similar to it. Going to the grocery store and you'll see somebody wearing the apron and you say, Oh, excuse me, do you, where's the cereal aisle? And they'll look at you like, oh, we don't sell cereal. <laughs> right? Okay, whatever it is, fill in the blank here, hardware store, we don't sell screwdrivers, whatever it is, because they don't want to be bothered to go look. Right? And this is, that's, that's laziness. It's all these excuses. And like, what, and like, and, and of course now, it was like, what happened to these people? Where, how do they get a job? What's wrong? It's the schools, it's the families, it's everything, the parents. And so that's the, right? And that's the rest of the text. Because what happens is it's sexual immorality. Of course, it's not surprising. The mouth of the forbidden women is a deep pit. Uh, and this is a euphemism. It's a metaphor, if you will. Uh, this is one of the top Top, I don't know, probably the top ten euphemisms in, in Proverbs is talking about the adulteress, the forbidden woman, the prostitute. It's a way of talking about sexual sin. And sexual sin is everywhere. It is, sexual immorality is commonplace. It's commonplace in our society today. Uh, I, I can't even keep up with the statistics on the number of births to unmarried mothers. Uh, it's, it's sort of shocking. Like marriage is now becoming, like literally, uh, it is, it is, it, we're, we're living in a world in which marriage is becoming a luxury good for the college educated who can afford it. And people who do not go to college, who don't feel that they have money, well, they just don't get married. They live together or then they break up and then they have kids and those kids don't have stable homes. And it's just going on and on and on as a result of sexual immorality, as pornography has become omnipresent. It is everywhere in our society today. You don't actually have to have a partner in order to have illicit sex. Pornography is all over the place and is corroding and eating away at our society. It is changing our social norms. So it is not normal anymore to have a stable two-parent family. And instead, uh, families such as they are, organize and fall apart, and it becomes catastrophic for the individual and for the individual who is involved in the sexual immorality, but of course also for everybody who are around them. And so then we end up in the situation where folly is bound up in the heart of a child. 
Now, the word that's translated here as child is somewhat broader than just child. It's really talking about young people. And folly is bound up in the heart of young people. They don't know what to do. They lack wisdom. Uh, they, it's the, by virtue of being young. They don't have experience. And, and I, I'm sorry if you're going to be insulted uh, if you are young. And by young, I mean 52 and, and down under. Uh, but, but, but the only way to become wise is through experience. You can be, if you're a young person, you can be not dumb. And that's, dumb is not a good, dumb is actually not a word in the Proverbs, but stupid is. So not stupid. That's your ambition if you're a young person is to make not stupid choices, okay? Don't get into worse trouble uh, than, than you're naturally inclined to do. And then over the years, through experience, you gain wisdom in doing the not stupid thing. Okay, start out with not stupid and move towards wise. And that's, that's good. But boy, howdy, it is really hard if you're young to make a not stupid decision. Because you're like, there are no consequences. There is no future. There is no tomorrow. Yes, yes, I will volunteer to serve in the US military. Right? That's why they go recruit people who think that they can't die because they don't know. They don't know anything about death or consequences. If they were coming after people like me, well, first of all, there's a lot of reasons I wouldn't. But, but even so, like somebody like me is like, well, I know that death is a reality. There's not that folly, that lack of understanding of consequence that young people have. And so, and then we end, and then of course, the poor, verse 16, the poor are oppressed. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth. It is a nature of our society, but the nature of every society is to take advantage of those who are weak. That's uh, one way to get rich, to, to get powerful, is to take advantage of those who lack power. Uh, and whatever side you're on, on the immigration debate, illegal immigration debate, I've noticed that people on both sides, or all the sides, there's probably more than two, will agree that one of the problems with illegal immigration is it drives down wages. Right? If you can get somebody who is afraid of being deported to work for you, though you can get them to work for you for very, very cheap, which means you don't have to pay somebody else more money, which means you don't have to spend as much money, which means there's not as much money available in wages to those who are poor. The poor are oppressed. And these cultural ills, like I, I haven't even talked about ancient Judea, have I? Like the way it was back then. These ills characterize our day just as much as Solomon's. And so it seems that we live in a society in chaotic disorder. We need to understand that this is a disordered society in which the Lord is at work. It is a disordered society in which, nonetheless, the Lord is at work. And the Lord is at work even when you question the Lord's wisdom. I want to talk about this. This may sound like a weird tangent, but I want to go back to when I was first ordained as, as a pastor, which is in the church, Presbyterianism, which now I'm going to say nice things about Presbyterianism. In Presbyterianism, to be a pastor, you're an elder. And an elder, biblically speaking, really just comes down to a man who is wise. 
And so there was this moment as I was preparing for ordination that I realized, well, if I'm actually qualified to be an elder, I must be wise, which was surprising to me as it was to everybody else, including my parents. Um, but, but nonetheless, true. And so I've been meditating on this for the last several decades and thinking about what it is. What does it mean to, to exercise authority and, and exercise some form of rule on the basis of wisdom rather than rules? And what I mean is, right, as a referee at a basketball game, you can make a bad call, right? This thing happened. Uh, that the, the, the ball actually went into the basket and you say, and you, and you call it as, as there's no point scored, right? That, that's wrong because there's a list of rules you have to follow. Wisdom doesn't work like that. Wisdom is when there's a range of options and you have to weigh this thing, that thing, and the other thing. And the problem with wisdom, with the choice that you make on the basis of wisdom is that it could always be otherwise. If there's only one choice, you don't have to be wise, right? There is no wisdom involved if there is no choice. So it's like adultery. Should I commit adultery or not? This is not a tricky question, right? Should I kill this person or not, right? All the top 10 commandments, it's very straightforward. They're all blunt, easy. But when it gets into the business of running a church, making decisions. Uh, it's, it's hard to say because things could always be otherwise. They could always have gone the other way. And so you have to make a decision. And, and this is why we have a group of elders who run the church, but in a church council talking together, figure out what is our best option here. And you weigh the decisions and you make the choice over here. And that's the same way much of, of government affairs work too, right? Civil government, you have a legislative process and you have this side arguing with that side and they hammer out the legislation and it's a compromise and I can look at that legislation and say, well, it's imperfect and it could have been better. And I'm right, right? Am, am, am I not right to say that that legislation could have been better? Am I not right to say, well, the session could have made a, a, a different decision? And so this is where within the life of the church, of course, we, have, we, we want to submit to our elders. We want to be careful to not be critical in spirit. I think the same thing would apply to government officials, as Paul points to us, tells us in Romans 13. Uh, I remember during the pandemic, and uh, we were living in Colorado, and we had just come out of the shutdowns, and um, all the pastors went on vacation. I was without a call at the time. And so as we're coming out of the pandemic shutdown, the pastors could all take vacation now, finally, and travel with their families. So I was doing a lot of pulpit supply, and I was in a bunch of different churches. And in all these churches, uh, I had people come up to me and say, so, Pastor, what do you think of these government shutdowns? And my response was always the same, which was, yeah, I'm really glad I'm not the governor. Because that's a really hard decision to make. Boy, I'm glad I dodged that bullet. I mean, not that there was a big chance. But anyway, um, the, but, but, right? Because that, those are hard decisions. And, and, and you know, we... Maybe we could have done things differently in Colorado. I don't, I don't know, and I'm, I've not lost any sleep over it. But the same thing is true with any decision in the church. Not any, but most decisions in the church. Surely, well, maybe we could have done something different. And it's not wrong 
necessarily to think that. Sometimes sessions make mistakes. And again, yay Presbyterianism. We have uh, books of church order that talk about what to do when the session makes a mistake and are there ways to fix it and how do we address that because sessions are not infallible because their decisions are made on the basis of wisdom. And even just yesterday, uh, an elder in a, in a different church was talking about the Pew Bible that they had. So, well, yeah, maybe we picked the wrong version. Maybe the version, the, the English translation that we picked for our Pew Bible wasn't the best one. You can always ask that question. Well, here's a problem then. Is it God is wise? When we deal with humans and their wisdom, we try to trust that what they're doing is best. And we want to hope for that and submit to that and in charity believe that and not be quarrelsome. But there's always that question, is this really the best? And so you look at the world around you Right? You say, wait, seriously? No, but seriously, this is the best? This is the best of all possible worlds? Now, our government leaders are not infallible, our elders are not infallible, but God. See, and that's where faith comes in. But there's that tendency to be a practical atheist, to look at the world and say, eh, is God at work? Because society seems really disordered. Things aren't working out super good. And that, of course, then, is the difference between God and me. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. And that is rooted, his providence is rooted, of course, in his being, in who he is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. Yes. Yep. This is wise. This is perfect wisdom. This is perfect wisdom. And it is by faith that we have to understand that. And it is by faith that we have to search out the scriptures. That given God's purposes, what has God done? What did God do in, when he created this world, created this order? He purposed he purposed to glorify the second person of the Trinity in gathering together a people called his church to be his everlasting bride in glory. And this is what is necessary in order to achieve God's purposes in Christ. And so as believers then, we have to trust that the Lord is at work even when you are tempted to question the Lord's wisdom. See, the Lord deals with sinners. may not seem obvious, right? Because there are still sinners all around us. But the Lord deals with sinners. The Lord detests the sluggard who refuses to work. 
and leads him to his own devices. If he does not want to work, then he is going to end up destroying his life. He is going to be in the low-wage job or the no-wage job. He is not going to have success. He's going to spend unwisely, and he will fall into the trap, the trap of the forbidden woman, where families and lives are destroyed. He's thinking about what adultery does, what sexual immorality does, the destruction which is wrought. And that is, in many ways, people reaping the whirlwind. They have, they have sown those seeds of their own destruction and the choices that they have made. It is hard, it is hard to exercise chastity, uh, to, to remain faithful to one person, but that is what you're supposed to do. Supposed to just have sex with the one person that you're married to. Again, it's not rocket science. Like, that's one of the easy ones, right? Should I have sex with somebody I'm not married to? No, right? That's the easy one. But you keep making that decision over the years, you become wise. But as you refuse to make that decision over the years, you become foolish. You become vain. You begin thinking that the world is all about you, and you begin thinking that I am owed a living and I don't need to work. You begin thinking that the consequences of my actions on my spouse or my partner, as now has begun to replace the word spouse, or on my children, whoever they may be, those consequences don't matter because, after all, of course, everything is about me. It is that self-centeredness, but it causes great destruction. And so then the Lord continues to deal with people, letting them fall into the consequences of their sins. So the people who oppress the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. The Lord deals with those who exploit the poor. But it's interesting, those who exploit the poor, uh, very few people get rich doing it. Uh, there's, there's a lot of talk about the payday loan industry and about how much money is made there. But when I've taken a look at it, the people who are making the money are not the people who are working at the check cashing places, making the payday loans. They're just as broke as me. Uh, they're, and it's, it's, so, so it's a few people, a few people can get crazy rich from exploiting the poor, which makes the rest of us think that that's a good life strategy. But generally... It's very few people are able to pull that off, and instead, those who seek to go that way with get-rich-quick schemes will end up poor themselves, and especially those who give to the rich. These are the people who try to curry favor with the rich and the powerful, get them to like them, whether it's, and most often it's like, well, I'm going to dress like a rich person. I'm going to drive a car like a rich person. I want to be seen as somebody with money by spending all my money on these things which really don't last uh, and then not saving for the future, not preparing down the road. And that ends up, of course, in poverty because then as all the money is spent, then there is no money for rent or for the necessities. And this is, I'm not exaggerating, of course. This is in the environments in which I've been working for a number of years, the worlds in which I've been living. This is, these are common, destroyed families. No money. Nice phones, but no money. Nice clothes, but, but no money. Uh, nice clothes, but free lunch. This is, this is the natural result of making foolish decisions. And that's why I want to turn back to verse 15, because this is why the Lord puts children in families. 
Uh, verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. There's a tendency from some people to read this and say, oh, okay, see, there you go. What is the solution to our society's problems? The solution to society's problems is to beat children with sticks. And it's really hard, given my line of work as a school teacher, to say, well, yeah. You know, I can see the argument. Um, but it's not just that, right? Because actually, just beating children with sticks does not produce wisdom. What it produces is fear. It, it produces fear. Uh, I, I see that, again, in my line of work, I see that constantly. That we have children who are afraid of being beaten, but they don't know how to show respect. So they can be afraid of people, but they don't respect people. They don't respect their elders. They're just afraid of certain of them. So I don't know, if that's what you want, if you want children who are scared of you, but are self-centered and vain, and don't respect their elders outside of the home, or do whatever they want when your back is turned, then by all means, use that as your only venue of discipline. But when it says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline dries up far from him, there's far more than the rod that's being suggested. There is discipline. Discipline is being pointed towards. And what is discipline? Discipline is putting order into life. It is guiding in decision-making. It is saying, no, you're not going to spend your money on this, right? Which is the hardest thing. The kid goes out, earns their money, whatever it is, mowing lawns or begging from grandma, however it is. Um, but they get the money. Well, it's my money. And they well, no, that is a wasteful way to spend the money. Spending all your money, like all 100, 100 bucks on... Um, blow pops, and whatever disgusting sugar junk that children are eating today, which I don't even know what it is. I see it all the time, and it's just a horrible nightmare. I just turn my eyes the other way, so I have no idea what it is, this stuff. But like, they want to spend all their money on that. Like, no, don't do that, because we have to think down the road. You want to have teeth uh, down the road. Like, brushing teeth. They, but you have to teach the kids this, right? You have to teach them wisdom. You have to help them learn this. And ultimately, this is why the Lord puts children in families for that discipline. And this is why the Lord puts children in families in churches. Because parents, God bless them, but parents are just not that bright either, right? You don't have to be wise in order to procreate. And so the parents have to be in the church where they learn the gospel, where they learn the faith so that they can teach the faith to their children. And this is the beauty of what the Lord does then with discipline. It's, we're not individuals off there in the world, but rather together. We have families and churches who are centered, and churches which are centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how sin is restrained. We don't do this, right? What do we say? Okay, we don't do this because that's not what Christians do. You might be mad, but Christians don't hit their friends. Instead, you turn the other cheek. You love your friend. Right? It's, it, you, this is what Christians do. And we have to teach. We have to love. We have to model. 
Because after all, then the kid has to see that if they're not supposed to hit, well, then you don't hit. You don't yell. You don't curse at the car that cuts you off in traffic. All that other stuff. It is modeling that life. That is how we have an ordered society. That is how we have a world that is not going to hell in a handbasket. The Lord is at work in all of these ways. And he is at work. He is at work for the good of his people, for the good of his church. This world may look disordered to you, but you are here and the church is here. The Lord is preserving, is preserving the world in which we live so that his church might flourish, so that you might have what you need, so that you might be able to follow the Lord that you might be able to serve him and to teach his ways to your children and to your children's children. He restrains sin in order that his people might flourish. This is God's wisdom. The eyes of the Lord see exactly what the world and his people need. So thank the Lord for preserving the social order. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks because we do not see you, because you are invisible, because you are a spirit, and yet your wisdom is all around us. And so we pray that, we, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see and to understand your works, that we might be thankful for your wisdom and that we might live according to it. Pray that you would use us, Lord, to build up our families, to build up those around us, and in all things, to give honor to the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.